0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem and he's teaching, uh, like we saw last week. But here at the start of chapter 12, in verses 1 to 12, which, uh, which Alex just read, Jesus gives us a parable that's very important. And um, this parable is important because it sets up all the teaching an action that comes after it here in the Gospel of Mark. Um, last week, we saw twice in uh, Mark chapter 11 um, that, that the Jewish leaders are trying to destroy Jesus, but they couldn't destroy Jesus because they were afraid of the people. Now, the influence of these Jewish leaders was already damaged because of this Jesus guy. And so um, they didn't want to rock the boat too much and how they opposed him, which means um, that their hatred of Jesus is increasing, but uh, they're forced to keep their distance from him, at least at least for now. All right, that's chapter 11. The same thing is happening here in chapter 12. Um, Jesus tells this parable against the Jewish leaders, and Mark says that they knew it. Look at the last verse there, verse 12. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, which means they got the message. Finally, people are starting to understand these parables. The Jewish leaders knew that Jesus had said this against them and they did not like it. But again, at this point, they were too afraid of the people to arrest Jesus. And so this creates this tension that we see over the next couple of chapters In this gospel, the Jewish leaders want to arrest Jesus, but they have to conspire and maneuver how they're going to do that. And later in chapter 14, they figure it out. But here in chapter 12 is the place where we learn why these Jewish leaders hate Jesus so much. Why do these Jewish leaders want to destroy Jesus? Because they reject him. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable. And I think we can understand it pretty simply. Um, Just take a look at it for a minute. Um, There are four characters in the parable. First, there is the owner of the vineyard. Second, there are the tenants he leased it to. Third, there are the servants that he sent back to the tenants And then fourthly, there is the beloved son, and the story goes like this. The owner of the vineyard built this vineyard, and he set it up very nicely, and he leased it to some tenants while he went away for a little while. And when the season came for vineyard fruit, he sent back a servant to the vineyard to collect the fruit. But when the servant got to the vineyard, the tenants did not listen to him. Instead, they beat the servant, and they sent him away empty-handed. And so God... Or the owner of the vineyard sent another servant to collect the fruit, but the tenants didn't listen to him either. So then the owner sent another servant, and then another servant, and then another servant. And every time these servants would come to the tenants, the tenants never listened. Instead, they mistreated the servants, and they even killed them. The tenants kept refusing to hear the servants. This actually sounds a lot like Jeremiah chapter 7, which is the same passage quoted in chapter 11. Jesus quoted from Jeremiah 7 last week. Pastor Joe mentioned that. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, God is speaking about the people of Israel, and this is what he says. He says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks. It's exactly what's happening in Jesus' parable. The owner of the vineyard keeps sending these servants to the vineyard. God keeps sending his prophets, but the tenants, the Jewish leaders, refuse to listen. So Jesus says in verse 6, That the owner of the vineyard had still one other, a beloved son, and finally, which is an important word, the owner sent his son to the vineyard, trying to get through to these tenants, trying to to thinking that maybe now, because it's his son, the tenants would respect his son and listen to the owner. But the tenants at this point become their absolute worst. Because when the son came, they tried to take ownership of the vineyard for themselves and they killed the son. All right, that's the par- does everyone see? That's the parable. Everyone get what's happening here in the parable in Mark chapter 12, show of hands. Just So you are tracking with the parable. This is the parable Jesus said. Pretty simple what's happening here, okay? The story sounds very familiar um, to us, um, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling um, this story, but we've still not gotten to the main point yet. The main point doesn't come until verse 9, and it's in a question. Um, After Jesus uh, tells this parable, after Jesus describes what these tenants have done, Jesus states the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's a good question. This question, it sort of lands fast in the passage, but I think that if we would have been there listening to Jesus, this question would have cleared the air when Jesus spoke it. This was the kind of question that also came with a reminder, see, And that reminder is that the owner of the vineyard is coming back to the vineyard. At any moment, the owner of this vineyard could step back into his vineyard. And when he does, what do you think he is going to do? Jesus says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 10, Jesus says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And, of course, the Jewish leaders had read that scripture, but what they had not done was realize that it's about them. The Jewish leaders... That Jesus is talking to here are rejectors of Jesus and therefore they will suffer the judgment of God. And the twist that is happening here in Mark chapter 12 is almost disorienting because remember the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come and destroy the Gentile rulers. These Jewish leaders here, they wanted the Messiah to come and bring God's judgment on the Romans, but instead, here is the Messiah, and he's coming to bring God's judgment on them because they reject him. That's the main point of the parable. The main point, the theme of this passage is the judgment of God, and so That's what I want us to focus on this morning. And when we do, there are three things that we learn. I want to go ahead and mention them for you. These are three things that we learn about the judgment of God uh, in this passage. Number one, God's judgment vindicates the reality of his justice. Number two, God's judgment magnifies the glory of his son. Number three, God's judgment reveals the wonder of his mercy. Let's pray. Father, your word is open before us, and we know that you have something to say to us. Father, we ask this morning that you would, through your word, because of your word, this morning hearing your word, open wide our hearts to listen. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. All right, number one, God's judgment vindicates the reality of his justice. And in order to see this, we need to understand first the injustice of these tenants in the parable. And it's, it's deeper than what we might think at first. Notice what the tenants say in verse seven. At this point, the, the owner has sent his son to the vineyard, expecting the tenants to respect his son. But instead, the tenants say to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And, and, and just right away, so you know, that, that's not true. Okay, that can't actually happen. Killing the heir doesn't make the inheritance theirs. But this does tell us something about these tenants. This tells us what these tenants are really trying to do. All the rejecting and not listening and mistreating and killing. It is all their attempt to get rid of the owner. That's what the tenants want. They are trying to get rid of the owner's claim on his vineyard and thus on them. And the word for this is rebellion. Rebellion. It's not just a problem with the Jewish leaders in Mark 12. This is a human problem. Human sinners like us have always done this. In our sin, we reject the authority of God because we want to claim that authority for ourselves. This is literally the oldest trick in the book, right? It goes back to Genesis 3, and it continues into... Today And I think if we, if we kind of zero in on this idea of rebellion, we can discover at least two levels of rebellion. The first level we can call the gray zone, and the second level we can, we can call demonic. The first level, though, this gray zone, I think this is perhaps the most dangerous because of how subtle we can make it. This this is when we don't outright reject God, but we become increasingly uncomfortable with clear lines. And and just to be clear so that you, you don't misunderstand, there are gray areas in life, okay? Not everything is black and white, but a lot of it is. And where there is black and white, it means that the right choice is obvious. Where it's black and white, there are no questions, but only answers. And the thing with answers is that answers are demanding. You have to do something with answers but but if we can hold off on the answers if we can just keep asking questions then you never have to land anywhere and everything becomes gray and gray is very cozy for someone who doesn't like god telling them what to do living in the gray zone is this continual soft pushing back On God's authority we don't outright reject him but but we might be struggling which sometimes just means that the God of the Bible makes us uncomfortable and we prefer to keep things blurry just keep it blurry and gray rebellion at level two however is the loud blatant outright rejection of God Uh, Level two rebellion is the kind of rebellion that thinks and says, my life is better off without God. These are the people who know the vineyard belongs to God, but they suppress that truth and refuse to live under God's authority. They reject God's claim on them, and so they try to become their own gods, which is demonic. This is level two of rebellion. But when there is no repentance, this is where every rebellion ends up. Every rebellion is ultimately demonic. Every rebellion. And what do you think God will do about this? God made us for Himself. He made us to reflect Him and enjoy His glory, but we as sinners have rejected Him and dismissed His glory. We have sneered at His authority and we have taken what is not ours. What will God do about it? Well, what would justice do about it? Justice would make things fair, justice would put things right. And because God is the God of justice, that is what God will do. God will judge those who have rebelled against him. That's the first thing that God's judgment tells us. It tells us that that God is the God of justice and no injustice goes unseen. Every injustice will be judged. God's judgment vindicates the reality of his justice. That's the first thing, but there's more. Number two Is that God's judgment magnifies the glory of his son. Uh, In the parable, as we've seen, the owner of the vineyard represents God, and that owner has a beloved son who represents Jesus. All right? And it's easy to see this. I just wanted to make sure we we see this in the parable. It's pretty easy to see who they symbolize and what Jesus is is saying here. Um, The high point of the parable, also easy to track with, the high point of the parable. is when the, the, the owner of the vineyard decides, okay, now I'm going to send my son to the vineyard. The, the servants, the prophets, they were doing their job. Um, they were sent by the owner as his spokesman, but the tenants refused to listen to him. So that's why in verse 6, Jesus tells us that the owner of the vineyard had still one other a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And so this carries the idea of finality. Finally, he says, this is the last chance. In other words, this is the no holds barred initiative from the owner to change things in the vineyard. All of those who were sent before the son were just a foreshadowing of the son himself. But now in verse 6, the beloved son has come and he has come from the heart of the owner. He is the beloved son and he demands respect. And those two things are related. It is the owner's love for his son that requires the owner's subjects to respect his son. See? That's what the parable shows us. What it means is that the identity of Jesus demands our obedience. Who Jesus is. As the beloved son of God means we must listen to him. We we must honor him. We must humble ourselves before him. And this is something we've already seen in the gospel of Mark. It's precisely what God the Father says about Jesus in the transfiguration. This is back in chapter 9, if you will remember. In the transfiguration, God speaks from heaven about Jesus, and he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him listen to Jesus because of who he is, which means it is not optional. Respecting Jesus is not a matter of preference. Because Jesus is the Son of God, we must listen to him. Because look, see, long ago, In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God kept sending his servants. He kept sending his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is categorically different. Because his son is the one whom he has appointed the heir of all things. His son is the one through whom has created the world. His son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. His son upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God sending his son to the vineyard, God sending his son to this earth has raised the stakes here. Don't think... You can reject or ignore Jesus and it be okay. It is not okay. It is not okay. So I I just want to be honest with you about this. I I love you. I want to be honest with you. In this passage, it is rejecting Jesus that prompts the question, what is God going to do about it? That's verse 9. What is God going to do about those who reject Jesus. He is going to destroy them. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says this plainly in Psalm 2 and the Bible says it plainly here in Mark chapter 12. And look, you might have maybe you've heard before that The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And I just want you to know that's not true, okay? The God of the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments is a God of love through and through. And in response to sin, God is always a God of wrath. Sin has never been swept under the rug. Sin has never been okay. What makes the good news so good is not that God doesn't have wrath toward our sin. It's that Jesus took our wrath for us. Jesus, the son of God, he came to this earth not just to get through to us, but he came here to make a way for us by suffering in our place the judgment of God that we deserve. That is the most vivid display of God's love for us. Jesus was judged in your place. And that just just raises the stakes even higher because when someone rejects Jesus, it means they are rejecting the love of God when you reject Jesus it means you are rejecting his atonement it means they are despising God's mercy embodied in Jesus and so when you reject him you are procuring for yourself the judgment of God that will be poured out when Jesus returns. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. God's judgment is coming, quote, "...when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is New Testament, man. This is whole Bible fact. And it's really more about Jesus than it is about us. I want you to to get that. We We shouldn't think that this is simply God judging people. It's more than that. This is God, the Father, avenging the glory of his Son that has been rejected. And that's what makes Jesus so confrontational. We've been talking a lot about how confrontational Jesus is. Look, we never stumble upon Jesus. Okay, We, we, we don't encounter Jesus. Jesus always comes to us. And when he comes to us, there is no neutral ground because of who he is. Jesus is the beloved son of God. Jesus is the grace and mercy of God made known. Jesus is the love and righteousness of God poured out. And when his word is spoken by his spirit, right now, Jesus is in the room. By his word and his spirit, Jesus is in the room. So embrace him. Believe him. When we are confronted With Jesus, when we are confronted by Jesus, everything is for the taking and nothing can be earned. So trust him. Just believe him, embrace him, put your faith in him. Because God's judgment magnifies the glory of his son. Number three, this is the last point, It's that God's judgment reveals the wonder of his mercy. And for this last point, um, there is some, some really deep Bible stuff happening here. And we could talk a lot about that. I really want us though, just to get, I want us to get this at the heart level. Okay, take a look at the Old Testament passage that Jesus is quoting here. It's in verse 10. It comes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. You probably heard it before. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I say you may have heard it before because it's the passage I read earlier. Okay. I read this for the call to worship. Um, uh, if we were to go back to Psalm 118, what's happening here, okay? This, this is a, a temple metaphor in the, in the psalm. And it's full of all kinds of irony. It's, it's, it's simple, it's subtle, but it's full of irony. It, go, it goes like this. Um, there are these builders who are building the temple of God, and there's a stone that they think is worthless, and, throw, and, and so they, they throw the stone aside. But actually, the stone that they throw aside, the stone that these builders reject it ends up becoming the very cornerstone on which the temple is built. The builders think it's a worthless stone, but actually it's the foundation. That's Psalm 118. It is one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the entire New Testament. And every time it's quoted. It's doing a couple things. The, the first is, it's meant to say something very clearly about Jesus. It says that that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the foundational, uh, the foundation of the spiritual temple of God. The the people of God are made and formed in Jesus. That's the first thing it says. The second thing, it tells us, Psalm one eighteen, it is used in the New Testament to explain a a. Complex issue in the storyline of Scripture. The issue has to do with Israel's rejection of her Messiah and the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. And that's a really complex issue. There's a lot we can say about that. We, we can't get into all the details now, but let me just mention a couple of things that are crystal clear about that issue in the Bible. Two things that are just crystal clear when it comes to this. First, is that God's plan of redemption has always included Gentile nations. We've already seen that in the Gospel of Mark. God has always had the nations in view. The second thing is that the way the gospel advances to the Gentile nations is by Israel's at-large rejection of her Messiah. They reject the gospel And so the gospel advances to the ends of the earth. The clearest place in the Bible where we see this this complex issue, the clearest place we see it is laid out in the book of Romans, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. In those three chapters, the apostle Paul connects all these deep and mysterious things about God's ways and God's plans. But the most relevant thing for us is what Paul does at the very end of chapter 11. Right, he, he has touched on, Paul has touched on all of these major things. There's God's sovereignty in mercy and judgment. There's Israel's blindness to Jesus and their future. There's, there's how the Gentiles, like, like many Gentiles like us, there's how we end up believing the gospel. Paul hits all of these points, but he concludes all of these points in chapter 11, verse 33. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Paul says, there's nobody like him. There's nobody like him who could have made this up. this, This whole thing, this whole thing, the way that God has set this up, this is indeed the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I think that Paul in Romans 11 is saying the same thing we see in Psalm 118 that Jesus quotes in Mark 12. Okay? It's the same thing that's being said here. It's that at the end of the day, Through the reality of God's judgment, through the mystery of God's plan. At the end of the day, we should just be left in awe. We should just be absolutely stunned. What God has done in the gospel, what God has done, and how He has set all of this up is absolutely marvelous. It is worth our marveling, especially when we consider that God has shown us mercy. This is where we stop because we're thinking big here. We're thinking these big, major things themes and that alone is enough to make us put our hands over our mouths just absolutely absolutely bewildered by the grace of God okay so do that and then think wait it's not just mercy up there it's mercy right here god has shown us mercy you mercy god has shown you mercy god I I feel this. God has shown me mercy. I don't deserve mercy, okay? I do not deserve the mercy of God. Who deserves the mercy of God? We, every one of us, we deserve God's judgment. God should judge our sins. And he does, he has, he has judged our sins. That's because Jesus took our sins upon himself at the cross. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus took God's judgment so that we could receive God's mercy. And that's why for every person united to Jesus by faith, the judgment of God reveals the wonder of his mercy. That is what the cross is all about. The cross of Jesus is where God's mercy is made known for you. It's where God's mercy is accomplished for you, shown for you, shining brightly for you right now. It's at the cross where God makes his mercy clear. And it's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so what we do is we, we look to the cross. We see at the cross. We look to the cross. We see at the cross the mercy of God for me. I want you to see it too, but I see it for me. I, we look to the cross, and we see the mercy of God for you and me, and then we marvel. This is just the way to live, right? This is just how we should do life, looking to the cross, seeing the mercy of God for us, and just being overwhelmed in gratitude, just marveling that God would have mercy on us. This is the way to live as Christians, and that's what we do each week when we come to this table. That's what the table is for. When we come to this table here, the, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus, His body was broken for us. The blood represents, the the cup represents the blood of Jesus because his blood was poured out for us. And when we receive this meal, when we we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes, which means that together at this meal, we are remembering the mercy of God. That's what this is about. We are remembering the mercy of God. And so if you have embraced his mercy, If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are invited to eat and to drink with us. So right now, as the elements come forward, let us look to the cross together. Let us look to the cross and let us remember the mercy of God for us in Christ. We're going to serve the bread first. It's gluten-free. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.